0: We interrupt our program to bring you this important message.
1: Good morning. Today is Wednesday, February twenty-eighth, and my name is Scott Sherra. I am Grace's dad. You know, one of the reasons that Grace's murder uh, was allowed by God is to save others and wake others up. And the most important person to wake up in that process was me. And as I'm waking up, I'm calling it Deprogramming, and that's why the name of this podcast is Deprogramming with Grace's Dad. So thanks for for joining today. Interestingly, uh, so those of you who've been watching know I'm from Wisconsin. It is 11 degrees this morning with 25 mile an hour wind, so it's below wind chill, below zero wind chill. Yesterday I took a walk, it was 63 degrees, I had a short sleeve shirt on, Uh, it was just beautiful, and today we're back to winter, interesting stuff, that's what you get in Wisconsin. All right, so Grace, my little buddy, she's the reason we're here, and the toughest thing for me to see after Grace died was the drawing that I'm going to have Don bring up and you'll see it. So go ahead, Don, bring that drawing up. So if you look, it says on the right hand side, that Dad's job is to keep Grace safe. And so I you know, I'm doing this, first of all, because I don't want anybody to lose their best buddy. Grace is my best buddy. And, you know, now that I've jumped in and have been working on this for thousands of hours, of course, it's changed my focus quite a bit. And now I see God's calling and uh, the responsibility that I have. So I want to share one other thing that's hard for me to look at, but it really shows who Grace was. And I have it back here. I took it out of my wallet. Um, I keep this in my wallet and I'll try to show it for the screen here and then I'll read it. Hopefully, everybody can pick up on this. So this is the kind of thing that Grace would do. So this is a little tag that was on a Christmas gift, and it says, To Earthly Dad from Grace Emily. And, you know, her little squigglies and all the the creativity that she brought to the table is is pretty interesting to me. Yeah, she was, she was quite a gift. Um, all right, the third thing I'll have so now we have uh you know our families in in the fight and so we have this poster that we showed outside the courthouse so Don, can you bring up this poster so this was outside the courthouse after we won our first uh, hearing so the first hearing on our case was july 14th of 23 and that's when the judge scheduled the jury trial which is coming up in november and somebody snapped this shot then after the, you know, I was just ecstatic. That was the uh, first day that I felt that uh, really good after Grace's death. And, And so we snapped that shot and you can see the poster, you messed with the wrong girl. All right. Well, today's title is when doctors and nurses are trained to kill. Yeah, you know, I'm not shocked by this anymore, but if people are just waking up, this is a shocking statement, but it is true. And Don, can you bring in both of our guests today, please? All right. We've got Andy Barnhart. I met Andy. Um, actually, we've never physically met yet. We're going to meet next week, Thursday. I think if you're coming to the event next Thursday, I think you and I are both speaking at it. Right, Andy? That's right. I'll be there. All right. So then, yeah, we met. Andy chased me down after hearing me on something and said, how can I get involved? And we talked um, a couple of times over the phone. And, you know, to my surprise, I mean, Andy's, you know, really a lot like me. I'm just a dad. Andy happens to have JD behind his name, which means he's an attorney, but he was not an attorney in this fight. He's he's more of a corporate business attorney. Correct, Andy?
2: No, uh, not a corporate business attorney, but j- just a general practice attorney. I've done criminal and jury trials, court trials on a various different cases, but never malpractice. Um, I'm getting into that now, of course.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, he he just was wanted to get in the fight and, and wanted to know, who do I know that he should know so that he could do something instead of uh, sitting by the sidelines? And I introduced him to Warner Mendenhall and you know He's going to tell a little bit about that history when he goes through his bio. And then uh, when we decided to do this podcast, we really wanted to have a nurse who had experience in the hospital and saw what was happening, and Andy thought Louise is the best person to bring on. So welcome, Louise. Can you hear me?
3: Hi, thank you. Oh,
1: good. Yes. You, you, you unmuted yourself. All right. So. Yes. Uh, I want to read. So both of them sent me bios. I'm going to have them introduce themselves uh, instead of me doing that. But I do want to make sure that I read the disclaimer that Louise sent uh, because I think it's important. So she wrote, I do not speak on the half of the VA nor any former or current employer. This information is my experience and opinion only. So I'm reading that. So you're covered, Louise, now with whatever you're going to say. And uh, go ahead and introduce yourself.
3: All right. So I am Louise. Um, I was born and raised in Duluth, Minnesota, but I moved to the West Coast, um, Washington State, in 2000. Um, Graduated with my CNA. I wanted to be a nurse and a mom my whole life. So uh, I got my CNA in high school and I started working as a CNA uh, in 2000 and then I got a job as an ER tech um, in Washington State. And I loved it. Um, when I think about healthcare, then I'm just like, wow, it was amazing. Um, although I like you Don, I feel like I woke up after during COVID like to what was my head was buried in the sand a little bit. Uh, so it took me a while to get in nursing school. It was a lot of work. Uh, I mean, I was off and on and I, it, so my, my nursing is, I hold it near and dear to my heart and I'm nobody's going to take it away from me. And I, I, I treat my patients like my kids. I don't have kids. And so, um, I, I, it's the only way I can relate to how a dad or a mom might feel is, is the advocacy I have for my patients. And, um, i worked in various jobs um, but during october of 2021 in that fall i worked in the icu um, in portland oregon and um, i was i've worked in the emergency department but i never worked in the icu so i was um and at first i I I love the one-to-one care. It was, this was my patient, or this was, two. you know, if I had two, they were my patients and only mine. And, like, I was in on every consult and uh, knew everything about them. And then as the Delta variant, so now this is the first variant of, of COVID in, I don't know, 2020, 19, was this crazy, insane, like, we had tents outside to set up for the influx of patients and like right. ppe built up and extra staff and they were closing down everything and we were sitting around on our butts doing nothing and we're just like where is this chaos that they're showing on tv and i had deployed to uh, arizona i worked on a, a navajo nation uh, indian reservation and they weren't any more busier there than they normally are they're just chronically over understaffed. But the interesting thing was the CDC was there and um, epidemiologists, and they were trying to track all these cases coming in and, and follow families and sep- like, uh, it was really icky. It was creepy. Um, I'm, one particular instance, there was a, a lady who was diagnosed with COVID and they wanted to admit her. And with when they admit people, they send them out an hour away they have to fly them out somewhere so and they were going in the room putting on all their stuff and this this lady also had some mental health stuff and um native american didn't want the treatment um she just wanted to go home and and do like the treatment they do in um in their culture and i uh the charger said hey louise they these these guys want to go talk to your patient and i said well who are you like you don't we, we don't just let people come in the ER right now. We're like banning everybody. And, oh, they said, oh, we're with the CDC. And I said, well, can I see your badge? <laughs> and they said, uh, sure. And I said, what do you want to do? And they said, well, we just want to talk to her and see like where she, you know, and I said, well, she's actually really anxious right now. And I'm, I'm worried that seeing you guys like coming in and asking these questions is going to make her more short of breath. So let me check with her and her, her uh, family, her mom, and see if they're okay. If they're okay, then they can come in. She was She gave the consent to it, but that's that's kind of how it was there. So I had a, a weird feeling from the start. Then I came back to Oregon, I started in the ICU, and mind you, they had taken down all our um, isolation and all this extra protection, and we were working quote unquote normal, and then Delta hit. And, and it hit like, actually, I don't know if it was Delta or the vaccine, but I know once the vaccines came out, the culture, work culture was split and it was split in such a way that was, I don't even know how to explain. The The care was deli- like, literally people said, nurses said, I am not gonna take care of that patient, they're not vaccinated. And in ev- rounds, The docs would say, this is a 65 year old male unvaccinated. And I said, hold on, why are we saying their vaccination status? We don't say their childhood vaccines update. That's not part of our care. And they gave me some excuse. Um, And so I'm still like, I was asking questions out of sheer, like I wasn't trying to cause a scene. I was parent, like scared so, so this is help. while
1: this is during while you were in the ICU this is october yep. so october, yeah, 20, right october october 21 right so you're in the yep. ICU and you're questioning things we are really yep. we're we're going to get into more of your experience here in just a oh, little, I'm sorry. little bit but that's okay you know you you dove in and so <laughs> you know, just close out with because i want to dive into your experience after angie introduces himself but close out with then what did you do once you realized okay,
3: so- So I asked questions, I got some, um, some of the sedation protocols changed, um, but I also got investigated by the VA because I was told that I was spreading misinformation. Um, And I I knew I needed to change, move, um, change my something. So I moved back to Minnesota um, and I thought I'm gonna work in the ER because I, for my own heart, I can, They, and this sounds kind of bad, but treat them and street them kind of where it's not as close of a connection. Um, And I started working at the U in the ER and, and that's just a whole nother problem and concern of healthcare now. And then I worked there for two years and now I am looking into functional medicine and preventative health and I want to keep people out of the hospital.
1: Yeah. Good. That's a that's a great plan. That's the best plan you could have because the hospitals have become killing fields, and it has been as I have researched. It's been by design. All right, Andy, your turn to introduce yourself. Go ahead.
2: Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Thank you, Louise. So, Scott, when you gave your little intro about Wisconsin and bragging about how cold it is, you really didn't underscore the the fact that your guests are from a, a state that's historically even a couple degrees colder than your state. But not- <laughs> that's right into an argument about it. But um, so, yeah, I I was born and raised in Minnesota. I I live in practice here now. Graduated law school uh, almost 15 years ago. Uh, Worked for a judge for a couple of years. And then I went into private practice and did all sorts of different um, things you do in a small town. Was in court a lot, court trials, jury trials. I did criminal defense, family law, uh, child protection, a lot of that, which is um, really a very interesting part of the law too. and I also d- decided to get into EMS in 2018. My wife and I both became EMTs. And we ended up moving to a new town in uh, end of, uh, fall of 2019 because of some family situations that had, had arisen. And we became EMTs in, in Long Prairie, where we had moved to. And then COVID hit in uh, early 2020. Now, at that point, I was working as a lawyer part-time because of the move and just kind of getting my feet back under, uh, under me. And I was working as an EMT and my wife was too. And right from the beginning, when COVID started, my wife and I knew something was wrong. And as Christians, we know that fear and messages of fear are contrary to the heart of God. Right. And that was what we felt underpinned everything we were being told about COVID from the government, from healthcare, from the uh, media, everything was centered on fear, and including the the healthcare system that we worked for as EMTs. And it wasn't long after that, that we experienced the very same thing Louise talked about, the extreme division that was sown inside the healthcare system we worked for because of the COVID vaccine. And the type of tyrannical authoritative measures they were taking and divisive measures that were being rolled out with the masks and with the vaccines, it caused us to push back. Ultimately, while we were given religious exemptions to the COVID vaccine because of the way they treated a lot of our coworkers, who, because they didn't really feel comfortable trying to articulate their ideological or religious exemption or objection to the vaccine, they they didn't they didn't submit either very very well articulated exemption requests or they just didn't bother at all. I was raised in a Christian family. I went to a Christian grade school, so I've always been comfortable articulating my faith and how it interacts with the real world around me, but not everybody else is. And yet right. they were put in a position where they were supposed to do that and then they were being judged for it and it was being, you know, combed over by people who don't know them personally and we we ended up resigning over that that the whole treatment that people were getting over their objection to the COVID vaccine. I ended up going to paramedic school at that point, and so I could uh, enhance the the type of EMS services I was able to provide. I was still doing law, and then I ended up getting hired by a small, family-owned emergency medical service company that wasn't that didn't require the vaccine. And I've been there ever since. I worked on the front lines during COVID as an EMT. I hauled people from one hospital to the next. Who were diagnosed with COVID and who were being treated with COVID protocols. And so during that process, I knew that the Lord was calling me to use my law license to make myself available to people, family members who were struggling to understand what was happening to their loved ones in the hospital, Bu- people, business owners who are struggling to understand how they could push back against these mask and closure mandates and um, people that were starting to have questions about this vaccine that was being talked about. So I put my name out there to places like uh, America's Frontline Doctors. Since then, I've developed a few concerns about them, but I won't get into the details on that. But I certainly, they were front runners and did a lot of good work, I think, in the beginning to to give people some options on how to explore alternative treatments for COVID and answer questions they might have about loved ones feeling like they were imprisoned in hospitals without being able to um, participate in their loved ones care and also uh, um, Tom Rents in Ohio, I put my name out to these groups and said if there's Minnesotans contacting you with questions of legal questions about COVID-19 they can call me if they if they're in Minnesota and they need a lawyer's advice. So that happened a couple two and a half years ago and The types of responses that started coming to me were from people primarily who had loved ones in the hospital and they felt that they were being locked out, not able to participate in their loved ones care or understand the treatment their loved one was getting. And quickly that turned into loved ones or family members who had lost loved ones under these protocols and they wanted to know what happened and if they had legal recourse. So. By, by the end of 2022, we had a group formed and we were meeting on Tuesday nights and we were listening to each other's stories. And I was trying to give the best legal advice I could about whether there was grounds for wrongful death cases being brought against these hospitals in Minnesota or, or other things we could do to try to get answers. And by early 2023, I set up the nonprofit called Medical Justice Minnesota and organized it under Minnesota's nonprofit laws and set up a website and we started getting the word out. And we have now grown to, we have over 100 families each with serious questions about how their loved ones died in a Minnesota hospital. We have uh, hundreds of people that want answers. They want their cases worked up to see if they've got grounds for a wrongful death case. And these are all Minnesotans who lost loved ones in Minnesota hospitals who are being treated under COVID-19 protocols. So that's kind of what got me here. Now, in addition to being a full-time paramedic, all of the time I have to do law, I spend exclusively on this legal work for the hospital protocols.
0: Well,
1: I'm gonna dive into some of that legal work uh, later on in the program, but that was a great introduction. Andy, one of the neat things that you wrote in your bio, I want to quote because I really liked it. And I didn't know if you'd bring it up, but I highlighted it because I wanted to bring it up if you didn't. And you quoted uh, Mark Batterson from The Circle Maker. And the quote was, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And I thought that was fantastic. Uh, I feel that same way. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm a dummy. I'm just a dad. I don't know anything. Uh, but he... he. um he keeps opening doors uh, and gave me a researcher's heart to to get into the details. And it's uh, it's been quite a ride. Yeah, I'm exhausted, I'm exhausted. <laughs> anyway, all right, so we're both in, you two now are in, Louise, I know you're helping do medical records review, which we can dive into in a little bit, but I wanna open up with a slide to, to frame this discussion and, um, And then I want to frame it in a much bigger perspective. So we just got done talking about COVID with both of your introductions. So, Don, can you bring up the slide three? All right. So let's just go through this. I put this together for the conference I'm speaking at in Las Vegas on March 8th. And so these are all about COVID these numbers so if you look at on the left hand side you see the united states has the highest number of COVID hospital deaths of all the countries on the planet we're number one at 1.2 million And india whose population is four times that of the united states with a landmass that's only one-third of the united states remember the lie about six feet the distancing uh it's it blows me away that their death count is less than half. So that tells you something's going on. You know, the United States has 4.2% of the world's population, yet we have 17.2% of the world's deaths from this COVID era. All right, Don, you can take that off the screen. So let's frame this in a much bigger perspective because God warned us this was gonna happen ahead of time. And he warned us in Revelation 18.23, which says that we, I believe it's the United States, will, will deceive the world through its pharmakia. And the stats with pharmakia, for those of you who are not familiar with it, again, we have 4.2% of the world's population. We consume in the United States 44% of the world's prescriptions. And that number is 4.8 billion prescriptions a year. The then overlay that fact with the eugenics agenda. So as I've drilled down eugenics, because that's what I believe happened with Grace. Grace had Down syndrome, and I think that she was purposely targeted, and the documents that I have show that. And it was under this business of the satanic lie of eugenics. And the United States is behind the eugenics program. The reason I'm bringing all this up is because we are in this mindset right now that it's COVID, COVID, COVID. And we are all focused on COVID. That's a mistake because if we only focus on COVID, it sets the cabal up for saying, yeah, we made mistakes. We thought it was was worse than what it was. And so they get the country to turn the page so that we forget what's going on. And that's why I frame it in a much larger perspective. So with that under our belt, Louise, I want to start with you. Um, I want you to drill down some very specific things that you witnessed in the Oregon hospital ICU and the VA hospital. So people can get a grip as to how hospitals are functioning.
3: Sure. So um, just, uh, I don't know, side note, uh, since I've met been lucky enough to start working with, um, Andy and, in and the group, which has only been like a month. Um, I have had a overpowering, I don't know. Um, I haven't thought about COVID for two years. I've pushed it down. So I, I might get emotional cause it's something that needs to come out and, and I knew it was awful. And so it's, it's very near and dear to my heart and, and kind of being ripped open again. But, um, but I do feel like helping with the um, medical justice for Minnesota that I can do some, some kind of reconciliation with that. Um, so initially one of the things, um, there was a patient, it wasn't mine, they were right next to me. Um, he wasn't doing very good. He had been intubated for weeks. Um, they were trying to talk to the family to change him to a DNR um, over the phone or to his wife. And his wife lived like two hours away. And there's, uh, you know, back and forth with the doctor as the guy's, um, everything's, his. He was, he's dying. And there wasn't more like they were going to do. But bottom line is he, his sats kept dropping and dropping and nobody was going in there his alarms were going off and the conversation between the nurses in the hallway was like laughing and they just silenced the alarms and yeah like then they were like well we called his wife and she's like two hours away so like whatever just moving on um there was
1: do you remember how old he was
3: um probably between
1: 50 and 60. Okay. It, the, you know, the number one and number two, cause, you quote, causes of death during this COVID era were elderly and disabled, you know, and that facilitates the collectivism agenda, which says, you know, if you are a non-contributing member of society, you don't deserve medical care, but other people were taken out also, but you know those were the two target groups to fit the narrative that People are too expensive. All right, keep going, Louise.
3: Um and so I was newer to the ICU and to like even the use of the medications that are used there, sedation and reversed and and paralytics and all that kind of stuff. But I just still had this feeling like every time I came to work, my patients were comatose. And when I looked at the orders from the chart, it would say, you know, titrate to a RAS of negative two or negative one unless proning and then negative five, which is awful period. But I would notice every time I came on that if my patients were already vented that I could turn their drips off at the beginning of my shift and they never responded. And so I asked, and it's interesting. I was just reading a quote. Uh, I had a, a nurse, my nurse clinical educator. She said, Louise always looked distressed and I asked how she was doing. I could tell she had emotional and expressed internal conflict over patient care. I encouraged her to ask respiratory therapy in the moment to educate her on lung protective strategies with ARDS. I was concerned about uh, moral distress impacting Louise. And this was October 14th. So she um, and I said, why, are, why is everyone charting um, negative two? on these patients when I look back at the charting for their RAS, but they're really a negative five because there's no way they change from negative two to negative five in between our, my shift. And and, uh, and I talked to the pharmacist and I said, why why are we running these as continuous drips? Nobody's titrating them. Their excuses they don't want to be exposed to COVID. So these midazolam, fentanyl, uh, propofol, um, Nimbex, they're, they're all supposed to be titrated and They're not, they're running at max dose. So I would, they, she wrote, and I talked to doctors too. I mean, I was like stomping my feet during rounds, like like crying and just like, and they just pat me on the shoulder and say, it's okay, you're a good nurse. Um, But they did change the parameters. They lowered the doses and they did push IV push paralytics instead of running paralytics continuous. uh, so that was, that was helpful, but I would come back to work after three days off and there's a lot of new nurses and a lot of nurses pulled from surgery or from whatever, and they would get an order from a new resident overnight and the patient would be back on full max strips. So I, everything I worked on during the day was back to, it was just like constant. Um, so I, do you have a question?
1: Well, do you, I mean, Andy, I'm guessing now, how many cases have you uh, opened the files on, Andy?
2: Well, we have eight cases right now that are under medical record review by our nurse review panel. Eight nurses each assigned to one case. Luis okay. is doing one of those. We've filed one wrongful death. We're going to file another one within 30 days. And then we have various other cases that are kind of in the process of of getting full complete medical records and, and so forth. We've yeah. So are you seeing, you know, what Louise is describing is a
1: pattern and the pattern is we are going to follow a script, a protocol regardless. So we become not patient focused, but protocol focused. So are you seeing that pattern with the records?
2: we've definitely seen the the pattern with the protocol driven treatment rather than outcome driven treatment now um, and i could give some examples but in terms of something that we can talk about across the board that's one of the main reasons we put together this nurse review panel we have nine nurses who are collaborating uh, doing their own review of each case and then they're then they're discussing it and coming up with consensus about what happened and we're doing that in order to give a robust review to each individual case and determine the issues, but we're also doing it so that we can create a, a way of, of looking at the big picture and understanding what the patterns were and the trends and how this happened across the board and across Minnesota. But, but I will tell you that right off the bat, a, pr- a really good example of protocol-driven treatment, which I'm confident um, calling out right now without even s- having seen many of the records is because of the ones I've seen is someone comes in with respiratory symptoms. Historically, this could mean, you know, influenza A or B, or it could mean bacterial pneumonia or, uh, or a different or a virus. Okay. Um, certain things are always done. Well, once COVID came and the hospitals started getting f- financial incentives to give patients exclusive COVID protocol treatment, then what we started seeing is failures to do certain bacterial pneumonia screening right off the bat. Sometimes procalcitonin wasn't measured, other times sputum tests weren't taken. And what the doctors were doing was they'd say, okay, these are the symptoms, shortness of breath, fatigue, fever, and so forth. These symptoms objectively could be consistent with bacterial pneumonia, but they're also consistent with COVID-19 viral pneumonia. So then what they do is they do a chest x-ray. And then the doctor looks at the chest x-ray and says, we're seeing, you know, interstitial bilateral consolidation or this ground glass appearance that's consistent with COVID viral pneumonia. End of story. We're going to put them on the COVID protocols. And nobody really wants to admit that 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 chest x-ray analysis is really pretty subjective and you need to look at that in conjunction with the other yeah. the other things like lab results they're not doing sputum tests they're not always looking at procalcitonin they might downplay the significance of white blood cell count so right there that's a perfect example of a protocol driven treatment and and so um and then i i just want to ask one thing is if i could Luisa, are you saying that Um, in doing the negative, negative two RASP, when you really felt like based on their level of sedation, it was negative five, are you thinking that's possible that nurses were really uh, not, not accurately noting what their level of sedation was?
3: 100%. 100%. I would, I mean, it was, there's so much copy and pasting going on in charts, like, even as far as you know, lungs clear, but then they're spitting up blood, you know, out of their ET tube. And, and like the that RAS score is my one of my biggest hangups that I had. And now I'm I'm seeing in the charts I'm reviewing, like it's I, I blow, there's not words to describe.
2: So that it's could be another example of the of a protocol across the board thing is we want the patients to be very heavily sedated, but we know that we can't really say they're negative five. So we're gonna say they're negative two because that's acceptable. Whereas negative five would not be clinically acceptable. So it's so- Yeah,
3: negative five is like dead.
2: So who really, who, I'm sorry, Scott, I don't wanna take over. Let me just say who, it's really up to the nurse. It's up to the nurse to say what the RAS score is and nobody's really gonna go in there and be able to say whether she's right or wrong, right? Correct. Okay.
1: So, Louise, because we went on that rabbit trail, explain what that score means so that everybody can understand it.
3: Ras is just um, a numbering system that is subjective, but you still know um, it goes from plus four down to negative five. Just you know, negative or four, three, two, one, zero, negative one, negative two. Um,
1: so somebody yeah. at plus four, what what's their? It's symptoms agitated,
3: freaking, like like super agitated. So like they have to be sedated because they're pulling their tube out or they're, um, you know, pulling their lines out and stuff like that. Like super delirious.
1: So to like a guy know. that can't find his hunting rifle opening day of gun season. All right, yep. got it. All right, I just want to get <laughs> it. <forget> it. <laughs>
0: Remember,
1: I'm just a dad. <laughs> You guys are over my head right now. All right. And what is negative five then?
3: So um, zero is alert and calm. Um, And then it goes down to awake to voice, which is negative one. And negative five is unarousable to no response to voice or physical stimulation. Like any or pain, you know, like we do painful stimuli and like even your reflexes should respond to that. If your brain does like your brain reflexes, but... There's just nothing.
1: So the incentive is to chart to the lower number so then they can sedate or what's the, what is the motivation behind the charting?
3: Negative, you don't ever want someone to be in a negative five or even really a negative four. Like that's maybe if they're just long protective measures for a brief, a day or two, but like, it's never, it's like the negative number is bad. It just, so the, the goal, like even in one of the charts that I've seen is, uh, you know, get to a goal of negative two to negative three, um, for this COVID patient. But so if you use paralytics, then your body is not going to breathe at all. And that's a negative five because your all your muscles are paralyzed. It's just the vent that's breathing for you. Okay. And they only usually use paralytics when they're intubating and they wear off and you shouldn't have to use them again. But with proning patients, their uh, excuse or was that they wanted, I don't know what their excuse was. I mean, I was confused all the time, but supposedly it made it less dangerous on the lungs, the, uh, the breathing if they were paralyzed when we
2: prone to these patients oh my god the cms bonus okay the $39, right, $39, thank you. You, you can the thirty-nine thousand dollars cms bonus for ventilation ventilating a patient a covid patient requires that the patient be ventilated for 96 or more hours so if you want to try to connect this this procedure or this protocol using a subjective ras score to money mm-hmm. you could maybe argue that the hospital wanted to make sure they were deeply sedated enough to warrant the ongoing ventilator for the length of time necessary to get the full bonus yeah and yeah that you know that ventilator uh uh, tangent is very
1: important because you know, the when I studied ventilators after I realized that was their push, Grace was never on a ventilator, but they asked us five different times if we would give a pre-authorization, you know, and after I realized Grace was murdered and I dug into it, I saw that the average amount of time somebody's on a ventilator is 22 days. So you have the $39,000 bonus, but it's substantially bigger than that because if they're on it for 22 days, you know, you get the the daily charge for the ventilator after the bonus, you get the daily hospital stay. So all of that ends up being just that ventilator decision is about 300 grand. So it's not a small, it's not a small number. And then if you add in everything else, I mean, you know, a 22 day hospital stay, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the bills, you know, there's bills that are way way over a million dollars when they vented somebody.
3: I would work with my patients and, um, if, if they didn't come to me ventilated and they were short of breath on on high flow nasal cannula and so the, i i feel like they based it ventilate uh putting someone on a ventilator based off of their abg which is a, a blood gas Great. level um and so it could be off a little bit but um the patient not so symptomatic or so i would and then, of course, patients are more short of breath because of the anxiety of the whole thing. Um, remind me, I want to tell you about a story at the U. After this, just really a brief one, but so I would t- beg my patient, like, let's just stand at the chair and just, and uh, you know, step, just do steps, and and that would make them short of breath. But like I would just, and I would talk to the doctor because they'd say, well, if this ABG comes back worse then we're gonna have to ventilate put you know put them on the ventilator and I'd just beg them like please can we try something else can we do a nebulizer can we and like then I'd come back to work three days later and my patients sedated ventilated and sedated I'm like what happened
1: would they would they use Budesonide with a with the nebulizer
3: nebulizers were I, I, that's not a familiar, I wouldn't, I don't remember it being, I remember it being talked about outside of work, but. um,
1: But they would never use that. Strangely, when I went into the hospital three days after Grace died, uh, they did use uh, budesonide with a nebulizer. Um, So uh, it's it's interesting how, uh, you know, one hospital will do X and the other one do Y. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna switch gears here a little bit because Andy wants to introduce his new logo, et cetera. But we're gonna start with Don, can you pull up number five, the screenshot of the existing website? I was so impressed with this. So after I talked with Andy the first time on the phone, I went to his website to check out who is this guy, what is he doing? And then I think when you and I talked the second time, Andy, didn't one of your kids draw do the sketch of this?
2: Yeah, my actually my daughter and I did it together i I wish i I probably have the uh original in here somewhere, but my daughter and I sat at the kitchen table and drew it out and colored it. I think I might have it yeah
1: I thought this was I thought this was so neat. Uh, so, and it's truthful. I mean, it's a neat, it's a neat meme and, you know, you know, ultimately seeing what Andy's doing, you know, that's why I, I really wanted to get him on the podcast. All right, Don, can you bring up the logo then? And Andy, I want you to talk about, you know, what's happening now with this logo, uh, the reality of the trademark and, you know, whatever you want to say about it. Go ahead.
2: Sure. Well, I, I could get in, I could give you a long history of why we chose medical justice, Minnesota. But uh, the short story is I chose that. Um, We got going and uh, we've made a lot of progress. And just uh, after the new year here in 2024, I got contacted by a person who um, showed me that they had trademarked the term medical justice many years ago. And they were quite insistent that they would defend their trademark and uh, resolve this. They would do so in federal court. And You know, we decided rather than get into a long court battle over a name, we decided to change our name and I'm glad we did that. I've felt peace about that ever since, but we changed it to COVID Justice MN and um, people who would search for our website at medicaljusticemn.org or .com can still do that through the year 2024. We've reached an agreement with the complaining party that we can still have traffic redirected from there to our new covidjusticemn.org or .com site. So you can get there either way in 2024, but I'd encourage you to, I I think within a week, the new website will be up, covidjusticemn.org or .com.
1: Well, fantastic. All right. I want to talk a little bit about legal with you uh, because of my own experience. So what are you seeing as the uh, types of legal action that are available now that you've dove into this?
2: Yeah, I, I think they're in three broad categories. The first one, and I think is probably the lowest hanging fruit, is the cases where hospitals missed normal diagnoses that they otherwise would have seen, historically normal diagnoses like bacterial pneumonia, that because of their financial incentive to see everything and treat everything as COVID, they missed. And when we can show that the, the missing, missing bacterial pneumonia, failure to then put somebody on life, potentially life-saving antibiotics, caused their disease to turn septic and end up sh- causing organ failure, respiratory failure and death, Then we can show that the wrongful death was based on that negligence and we can still uh, argue that their negligence was partly due to financial incentives that they had to basically just look at everything as covid so you can still argue the punitive nature of the case which is based on their their uh their decision and their negligence being financially motivated
1: so, so Minnesota law allows for puni- a punitive element of malpractice? Wisconsin yes. law doesn't allow for that. Yes, In we, Wisconsin, everything is malpractice. That's why we plot our case a different way, which we'll get into in a little bit.
2: We've got no damage cap in Minnesota either. Oh,
1: wow. Okay. Um, That's unique. Wisconsin has a $750,000
2: cap on med- medical malpractice. The the next category would be, I think what a lot of lawyers willing to even look at these types of cases sort of thought that they were going to all be about in the beginning, but now attitudes are changing, and that is that a particular COVID nineteen protocol is responsible for the patient's death, and there was there was a couple that I could mention that where the hospitals were getting financial incentives to administer them uh one of them was uh, the only antiviral that got eua appro- emergency use author authorization approval that's remdesivir and um it did abysmally in the ebola trials it um i think that there was a lot of uh, media and governmental effort to downplay the effectiveness of competing, competing antivirals like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine so that they could have the criteria they needed to get the emergency use authorization, which was that remdesivir is the only appropriate antiviral for COVID. And right. when patients are treated with that, and uh, they the hospitals don't even adhere to the manufacturer's own recommendations like taking d- daily liver health function panels, um, looking at kidney, kidney um, uh, health and so forth. If if you can show that the uh, organ damage was caused by remdesivir, and and that that caused the death, then you you can you know bring a wrongful death case based on that. However, and, and and remdesivir wouldn't be the only COVID protocol, of course, the ventilators. But the difficulty with those is then the Prep Act comes into play. You've probably talked about it on your show, but it's it's uh, basically proposes to give full immunity to manufacturers, distributors, and um, administrators of COVID-19 covered countermeasures, which would include just about everything that's being used to treat so-called COVID in the hospital. And um, it's supposedly an immunity uh, blanket. Um, That is gonna be tough to, to overcome. There are lawsuits in process throughout the country where they have alleged that a wrongful death is based on the use of a covered countermeasure, and there's different theories about getting around the PREP Act, but we haven't seen a clear path yet. So we we don't want to, um, we wanna make sure we don't miss more of a standard medical malpractice case, like a missed other diagnosis that was made possible by the hospital fixated on COVID, like I mentioned in the first scenario. And then the third category, it, and and by the way on that second category with the the protocol thing i think that the law is going to develop in this area i do think there are going to be some victories probably at the appellate level against the prep act but we need to make sure that we're we're using the right cases for those because um the courts i think are going to be going to want to uphold the prep act and 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 we're going to want to make sure that we we confront them with the the case so egregious that they can't you know they can't ignore the damage that's been caused by strict adherence to the, the these countermeasures uh, under this so-called uh, really impunity that these hospitals had in, in administering the protocols because of the Prep Act. So we want the right case. Um, yeah, I,
1: I want to just jump back to Med Mal just for a, a second because what is what is the statute of limitations in Minnesota for
2: Med Mal cases? Three years uh you know one of one of the reasons sorry, we got four years for four years for med mal but if it's if if you're alleging it caused a wrongful death that brings it down to three so, so if
1: the person lives through four, a med mal situation it's four years but if they die it's three yes interesting okay yeah in wisconsin it's three years You know, one of the reasons we did a a common law battery claim is because, you know, that opened up punitive damages, but it also the statute of limitations changes with with battery versus med mal. All right. So then the third category, Andy, that you wanted to get into.
2: The third category is typically cases that would uh, causes of action that are much more novel sounding very intriguing and most of them have much longer statutes of limitations that would be cases like statute of uh sorry false claims cases and um warner mendenhall who you uh, hooked me up with is definitely involved in these types of cases and i i he would be a much better person to summarize this but essentially if uh because we're all taxpayers we all have standing to bring a case where the uh, if you can prove that an institution uh, received federal money based on fraudulent representations, then basically that institution defrauded the government and by virtue of that, the taxpayers. And so this would be a, an a, a, a case under the False Claims Act, which protects against that. And um, we believe there's a lot of fraud that occurred um, by hospitals in uh, determining that a patient was a good candidate for certain financially incentivized protocols. And in doing that then, and conveying that to the federal government and receiving the bonus payments, they, uh, if they committed fraud in that, then that creates the basis for a false claims case. That's got a six year statute of limitations. I, ve- I oversimplified that, but um, I wouldn't be doing that myself. I'd be referring that to someone like Warner. So then he would be the person who could give you all the down and dirty details. Um, Another type of case would be a, a RICO case. Uh, there's criminal RICO and there's civil RICO. RICO stands for Racketeer Influence Corrupt Practices, or, or Corrupt Organizations Act. And it basically means that when, when a otherwise, uh, well, when, when a financially incentivized criminal enterprise kind of infiltrates uh, a legitimate business um, and some of the actions occur across state lines, then this can, uh, this can give rise to a RICO claim. And I'm not gonna give a lot of detail on that, but when you think about uh, a group of actors um, who have basically co-opted a legitimate enterprise in order to earn money doing illegal acts, then um, you know, you're thinking about, you know, the, basically I think the, the interplay between the federal government giving hospitals money to do criminal acts and that would be rico that's got a 10 year statute of limitations It'd be i want to yeah i want
1: to make a statement on on that because it is it's you know this this should be the norm for our our mindset so the paradigm shift here is that we have what set up covid is standards of care standards of care have been around since the early 80s the standards of care became controlled by Center for Medicaid Services. That's the government, right? The government's in control of Medicare, Medicaid, the reimbursement of the hospital reimbursement rate, the doctor reimbursement rates are based on following standards of care dictated by the government. So the government is the big player in this and it it set up COVID, standards of care set up COVID perfectly. Uh, anyway, I actually would like Louise and Andy both of your comments about that statement before I, mo- I want to move on to amnesty then but um, what do you think about standards of care is really the setup to COVID because what happened is they, the government before COVID was indirectly controlling payments through standards of care, then all of a sudden they directly incentivized with COVID. So it was really just a, it, it was just a progression in what they had already set up since the early 80s. So go ahead, Louise, you first.
4: Well,
3: we, research has shown that uh, nursing care and, uh, quote, standards of care is not a one size fits all, ever. Like our, you base your care on your patient. You don't look at numbers to treat a patient. Uh, you know, you could look at a monitor and see a flat line. And are you going to go start CPR on them because the cardiac monitor shows a flat line? No, of course not. You go check your patient. Um, even I, uh, a chart that I was looking at that he would tested positive at the deck. Why are they testing at the deck? There's no treatment there. It was just, and he got a positive. So then of course he got anxious, but he, when he uh, came to the ER, he denied shortness of breath, but they put him on the protocol based on the standards of care based on, and it says based on x-ray and whatever, we're start remdesivir and, um, you know, treat for COVID based on tested positive. So nothing, was based on their on this uh the patient centered care like you always adjust you have maybe a protocol but it's never the same care for every patient never has been
2: well
1: i agree that you know a good doctor and a good nurse they the standard of care should be like a guideline uh Mm -hmm. but what i you know when we I never thought we'd file a a lawsuit because what I was told by the best medical malpractice attorney in Wisconsin is you cannot win these med mal cases based on standard of care arguments. You have a one in 10 chance of winning. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I'll give you an example, Scott. He said, I, I represented a family where the, um, the husband died after a surgery where he had a sponge sewed up inside of him and And he said, I I lost. I said, how could you possibly lose that case? He said, I brought in 10 experts, but they brought in 100. So they had 100 people lie that that was in the range of standard of care to leave a sponge inside of somebody. And he lost the case. And, you know, so this standard of care thing is, I mean, I think it's a it's a crack and it's been used to set up that if the physician can you know this idea of the prep act the the prep act of course pretty much everybody understands that's a they put together this legal shield but the standard of care was the prior legal shield because if the expert can you know you got this dueling expert thing so when you know the hospital has more money than us and in our case ascension hospital system has 30 billion in cash i mean they can bring experts that They can say everything they did to Grace was in the standard of care, right? So that's yeah, that's a that's a tough burden of proof. Andy, what is your reaction to this historical view that I'm? This is why I want people to get focused not on COVID, but to see this whole system has been designed to hasten our death, and it's been by design.
2: You're right. It's uh, it creates a very difficult um legal landscape many lawyers won't touch it many doctors won't touch it because of that they say what happened during covid was everyone was following the new standard of care which was treating treatment under the protocols what Luis is saying is we've always been taught you know you treat the patient not the monitor and uh, that's just a small example of the reason it's not uh, it's not appropriate to just treat someone based on protocols you can't look at your computer and say oh this is what i got to do but that's exactly what was happen during, happening during COVID. The thing about the standard of care is, um, let's just talk about isolation. You yeah. will, you will have L- Luis. I'm sure can tell you that historically, um, ICU best practices for patients were family involvement. Um, Absolutely. Little examples of that are um, keeping a person so that. Keeping a person fed when they're wearing an oxygen mask, and there's not enough nursing staff to constantly sit at the bedside and feed a person one spoonful of food at a time—you know, put their mask back on and take—you know—all these little things. Um, The hospital staff does not have the resources to provide the the date the moment needs that a patient has. That all go toward their best outcome, and so family involvement with. ICU patients has always been part of the best practice that got totally thrown out the window with COVID. Now, did something change in 2020 that made that historical best practice no longer a best practice? No, the only thing that changed is every the fear about COVID got hyped up to the point where nurses felt like they, they were justified in not, not spending that kind of time. Well, actually, they felt they were justified in keeping family members apart. So. That's what it was. So how do you so that's going to come down to uh, I mean, for, for the isolation, though, legally, you know, if we're bringing a wrongful death case, proving that the isolation caused the death is difficult. But if we had a case like that, we'd have to have an expert that would testify and say that best practices, standard of care for this patient were and always were and still are that they would have family involvement and the patient may be starved. And because the uh, there is no one there to feed them. yeah. I but I it's hard to answer that question, Scott, because the standard of care thing is is uh, it's been completely co-opted and yeah. perverted.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I want to switch gears to amnesty. And what why I went on this rabbit trail with our interview is Louise sent me a clip um, which I thought was great. And then she followed up and said, oh, that's me on the clip, which is pretty neat. So, you know, what's interesting about this clip that we're going to play first is this was uh, released, I don't know if it was recorded this day, but it was on September 12th of 21. All right, 21. Remember, just to frame the time frame of, you know, supposed COVID, you know, January of 20 is when this started happening. So if this whole concept of a pandemic was real, You could excuse maybe the first three, four weeks of how people responded, right? Uh, But then after that, you know, you should, you know, if you're a nurse, Louise, you were one of the ones that were waking up and say, this doesn't make any sense, right? You have 100% of your patients dying. I mean, do you just keep following the same protocol? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And you know, I, you know, I'm totally against amnesty. I think it is uh, a satanic ploy. But these, this first clip, I think is real good. And then we're going to play one more clip. And then I'm gonna get both of your thoughts on this. So we'll do it. We'll do it just a brief introduction or um, interruption between the first and second clip. So go ahead, Don, play the first one
4: through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. The discussion with the newer nurse to the ICU is exactly how I've been feeling. And I, I can't think, you know, for the information that you're providing on your podcast and the references on Facebook, I'm delving deep into that as hard as it is because I'm still not able to back up my gut feeling in conversation during rounds and it, it's really hard and I'm, I've been reconsidering even Staying in the ICU, but your your podcast has given me the gum for the the strength to keep going. And I mean, honestly, I don't I, I I believe in God, and I have a lot of faith, and well, wavering at times, but I know that He has a plan. And and I I'm not out to make a name for myself, and I don't want to prove anything. I just want to take care of my patients, and I feel like right now all I'm doing is killing them.
1: So we already had, so you've got this lady that's got a podcast explaining alternatives in the ICU. You had, as Andy said earlier, you had uh, frontline doctors. We had the Zelenko protocol. We had FLCCC, and yet in this captured system of a hospital, nobody's looking outside they're just at following a blindly following a protocol to kill everybody all right don's gonna play another clip that gives just one more angle and then we're going to come back and i want to ask both of you your thoughts about uh, using amnesty as a as a tool go ahead don
0: doctors put her on a ventilator and into a coma But after kidney failure and a series of mini strokes common in COVID, about a month after her admission, staff began urging her mother, Alma Salas, to transfer her daughter to end-of-life care and let her die. I felt like he was trying to pressure me. Hey, do you really want to live your life taking care of your daughter in a vegetative state for the next 30 years? I just looked at him and I said, I'm not going to do it. I'm I'm not going to let her go. Another time, she says, six or seven HCA staff members gathered at her daughter's bedside, urging her to end her treatment. One nurse, Ella says, was very aggressive and came in repeatedly. She got really angry. I was like taken aback. The pressure Salas describes exists at some of HCA's other 170-plus hospitals. Staff are pressed to get patients into hospice, where life-saving treatments are withdrawn, and the incentive is not necessarily patient care, but the improvement of hospital performance metrics. This, according to six nurses and 27 doctors who've practiced at 16 HCA facilities in seven states, and who spoke to NBC News. Because if a patient dies in hospice, even in the same hospital bed, their death will not be counted in the hospital's mortality statistics, a key factor used by those who rate hospital quality. And the better the rating, the better for business.
1: So this amnesty play, I mean, the first time I heard about it was about a year ago. Um, one organization has come out already and said, you know, we've got to have amnesty so that we can find out the truth relative to COVID. I mean, I, I see it as foolishness beyond foolishness. But uh, Louise, what is your perspective of the idea for amnesty for doctors and nurses relative to murdering people in hospitals?
3: I, I, when I think about that particular experience with those, the two nurses that were laughing and turned the alarm off, um, I, I it was so egreg- egregious, I guess. but, uh, it's one of those that like, I could have nightmares about it because it was so evil. Um, it, like, like apocalyptic uh, at just yeah. so when I think of amnesty like there's no nothing you know um but then I there was a lot of new nurses and even still there's a lot of new nurses coming in and they're being trained a certain way they're never shown how it used to be and they and they I, I it, it scares me like even currently in healthcare like in the ER, the care is terrible, and I actually refused to preset people because I was not provided the the time to train a new nurse the way they deserve to be trained. Because corners still have to be cut, and you still have to have that. Um, patients are not being provided the care. So, if you know someone dies in the waiting room because we have no beds, and no, and I told. The chargers. i told the er doc they are have a fever of 103 and they're lethargic and they're short of breath and they're not waking up and the nurse just looks at me and is like sorry i don't have a bed and then they die out there because i have a full assignment in the back what do you do it is so like and my name's on the chart yeah and you know it's just it is I had to get out of there to protect my license. Granted, I still work in the ER, um, but in a tiny one, just casually, but I didn't want to leave the ER. I didn't want to leave the bedside. I want to do bedside nursing. I love it. But it was it became too scary and I couldn't ethically, I would leave even the U balling because of the the look of patient's eyes in the waiting room. Like they're sick people there there's really sick, sick. It's not a a cut, a cold, a flu. This is cancer patients that are relapsing. And this is vaccine injured people that are being brushed off and they're having neurological symptoms. And they're just piled out in the waiting room. And it's the nurse that goes out there and checks on them. And they look at you like, what is going on? And how can you address every single one of those people? You can't like one person can't and they didn't provide the staff to do that it is it's it's not any better it's a different kind of pandemic epidemic
1: well there's going to be a point where this detail like this gets released to the general population so i think there's a controlled release right now you saw that clip was from nbc news and you know there was if you look at the framing of that clip i'm not going to get into it right now uh, there was a certain way that they framed it as a controlled release. But, you know, the vaccine deaths are getting into the mainstream media right now. People don't realize what a hospital situation is like. Most people, when they hear me speak yet, think, no, nah, it can't be that. Yeah, you know, Grace's death was a one-off. No, it was not a one-off. It's it's become the norm. So, Andy, what's your reaction to amnesty?
2: Sure. Well, and, and, and going back to your your comment about the eugenics and that this is way bigger than COVID. It's a global cabal that wants to depopulate us. And and basically it's all in the interest of serving the Prince of darkness, Satan. I agree with you 100%. And we need to remember that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we, we fight against principalities, powers, forces of darkness that wanted, they want to destroy our hearts and minds and prevent us from ever knowing the Lord Jesus as our Lord and savior. And, and so, when we think about the people that were, um, what we are can we consider to be our enemies within the hospitals and those that did our that killed our family members, we have to remember that they were used by the prince of darkness to yep. accomplish this great evil and so. I would not be doing this work. It's very stressful. It's very intimidating. It takes me away from my family and it takes away my peace until I remember that I'm following the Lord and then I do have peace. But I mean, it takes away my daily, you know, I I wouldn't be doing this if the Lord hadn't put it on my heart strongly. And so when I think about amnesty and I think about what's it going to take for the um, powers of darkness to be revealed and, 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 and how... It's working its its evil plan on, our, on the people of this planet and trying to turn their hearts and minds eternally away from the Lord. We got to remember who we're fighting against. And so I'm not saying that I like the idea of giving amnesty to anybody, but we have to remember who our true enemies are and that all of these people that we might consider giving amnesty to, they all are they all are God's children as well, who he is desperately hoping will turn their hearts and minds to him. So I don't know if yeah, it's like, if this. I don't want to pull, I don't want to, um, I also don't want to have my rhetoric be so strongly against nurses and doctors that none of them would ever decide to become whistleblowers because they, because I, I, I want to try to put it in the proper context is that a lot of them were deceived themselves and tricked. And, and, and great financial and, and career pressures were brought to bear on them as well, but then there's also the, the fact that they allowed themselves to succumb to fear, and the way people treated unvaccinated patients in the hospitals is a perfect example of how people allowed fear to dominate their hearts, to turn them against other people that they perceived as becoming part of the problem by not vaccinating themselves. I mean, it, it's, the whole thing is, is wickedness, so I'm not going to say that i don't see a place for amnesty because i see these people that might be the recipients of amnesty as not the, the root of the problem anyways they were used by forces of evil greater than any of us so i don't know <laughs>
1: yeah well that's it's a yeah, that was a uh, actually a great answer andy I, yeah i'm split maybe splitting hairs just a little bit when i talk about amnesty but you yeah, i see you know a person who repented is mm-hmm. got a different consequence than a person who killed somebody on purpose and now wants to get amnesty because they realize they were caught. You know that's that's,
2: that's a very good distinction and I would want to make sure that anyone who got amnesty was in the le- the former group a repentant person.
1: Correct. And you know by definition if they repented they would want to come forward and
2: share. Right? You know, that's uh, even if like, that they'd be safe, you're right. They wouldn't need amnesty. They wouldn't, correct. That. yes. Yeah. And I mean,
1: I'd look at our, our own lawsuit. I mean, we sued uh, five doctors and two nurses on purpose because we want to stop the behavior. If you, you know, if the hospital writes us a check for a billion dollars, that doesn't stop anything, it doesn't even hurt them. You know, the individual still chose. You know, if you look at the, the federal government, built the weapon right? The hospital loaded the weapon, but the doctor and nurse pulled the trigger. So we've got guilty parties all, all the way through. But I mean, if we can stop the people from pulling the trigger, you know, we can stop the behavior. And, you know, I look at the, you know, the short-term goal with our lawsuit. is if the individual doctors and nurses repented, we won. You know, we don't need a lawsuit at that point because the behavior is stopped and then they're going to come and be outspoken and share what's going on. I mean, that would be quite a gift if that happened. I mean, it would also save
2: a lot of time and money. Um, so I, 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 would I, truly, I truly applaud you for that perspective. I, I think that there's many people in your shoes who actually do believe that if, if we could have these doctors and nurses who are responsible come forward and ad- admit they're wrong and expose the system, they would take that over money any day. And I know how much money you've invested in this. It's unbelievable. I know how much of a burden it's been on your family. And if you can sit here and still say that it would be enough of a reward for you to get their repentant, you know, hearts. I, th- yeah. Thanks for letting me jump in and say, that's what no, we I'm glad.
1: I mean, that's that's the goal here. I mean, we've already said we're not, ta- you know, if they choose to write us a check at the end, we're not even taking the money. I don't care about the, you know, we're we're in this to, to expose was to expose but more importantly to shed light on the evil I want to ask each of you one one last question before I close so Louise what what is the current situation in most hospitals now that COVID is supposedly over
3: Um. Uh, I- I'll just give you a brief example. My parents live in Washington now, and my mom sent me a text and said, "Dad's coughing so hard, he he like passed out, and he's been sick." And I said, "Well, what do you mean?" And she's kind of a hypochondriac, so I said, "FaceTime me or whatever." So uh, she Facetimed and, and she you know she videoed my dad, and he was kind of tripoding, and he was short of breath, and um, of course they have a, a stupid oxygen uh, sat reader and I, you know, I was like, well, I'll put it on. And it's, it said like 89 or 88 and he's, he's not doing anything. And I was like, well, don't go to the ER. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I still said that I was like, he was talking to me. Um, and I, I said, do a nebulizer with, with, uh, normal state, like just salt water. Cause they have a nebulizer and, um, You know call me back if it goes down like if dad starts like getting confused but he wasn't um but i I, there's a place for the hospital um obviously for sure trauma uh anything trauma related um they're gonna fix you up because there's you know a bone broken or a gunshot wound to plug or something but medically um and first of all don't go alone period. Like you need an advocate, period. And I don't, I don't trust them. I don't like the feeling I have about it. Um. I wish that I, sometimes I'm like, God, why did you give this knowledge to me? Because it's so hard. Why can't I be like everyone else? That's just kind of like, well, it's just the way it is. And like, cause it's, it's hard. It's hard to, not be i don't know what the word cynical or yep. i've always trusted healthcare what hat like it's just yeah so yep. it's a scary place it's not the same and people i i after after working at the u i said i'm not hiding this anymore you know as a nurse or professional healthcare professional you're not supposed to show like your the concerns you have it's like if the patient's declining like you just don't let anyone know and blah 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 but it's I wish that people would have videotaped the waiting room. But they couldn't because of HIPAA. And when they did try to, the security, they got, you know, security came out because nobody's reporting on this chaos. It's a third war. I mean, like a war zone.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for that. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, my my sentiment exactly. All right, Andy, what does COVID Justice Minnesota hope
2: to accomplish in 2024? Um, Scott, I'll, I'm going to answer that. I'd say one thing, Louise. we all suffer under our knowledge and our insight into this evil. But imagine how God feels being omniscient and knowing everything. And yeah. we're sharing in that suffering. And I think that's a high calling. So I hope that you can keep moving forward. So in 2024, we um, so what we do is uh, we know there's way more cases in Minnesota now, potential cases, than we have the bandwidth and the resources to to actually sue in court. But what we can do is we can try to set up each one of these cases and, and basically put them on a platter so that if if we can continue to network with other lawyers and law firms that that have deep pockets and, and, and clout to to take some of these cases, we want these cases to be ready and packaged up for them. And what we're doing in that regard is, we've got an intake coordinator who speaks personally with each fam- a family member of each new possible case of someone who died in a Minnesota hospital. We've got uh, some paralegals who are working to help people get the legal standing they need to bring a wrongful death case in Minnesota, which requires bringing a petition to be named the trustee for the next of kin and getting uh, consents and waivers signed by all other next of kin family members. We've got this legal nurse panel that we've put together, which I'm very excited about. Luis is one of them. This is amazing. There's nine of them who are working together and, and helping each other understand records and coming up with consensus on on what kind of care was giving and where the problems lay, and then um, we're networking with other lawyers. We're and and we're trying. What we want to do in twenty twenty four is many of these hundred plus potential cases are going to be due with the three year statute of limitations by the end of twenty twenty four. We want to make sure. At every single one of these potential cases where there's a family member interested in finding the truth and knowing what their legal options are, we wanna make sure that we've put, we've put them in the best possible position to know their options and to have a path toward justice. And, and we might not be able to personally sue their case, but if we can at least get it set up and, and attract another lawyer that can do it, we want to meet, we wanna match up every possible case with a lawyer and we also need to continue to meet doctors and nurses who are willing to provide their expertise so that we can work up these cases and understand what we have. So that's our goal for 2024. Make sure nobody misses their deadline and knows what they've got. And we've got a lawyer for each person. And it's a huge task. And I, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I'll just summarize it by saying, um, you know, if you're gonna, if you're a farmer, right, and you're gonna and you're hoping that you're gonna have rain. Uh, in during growing season. You can't just wait to plant your field to, to see if you're gonna have rain. You've gotta plant your field and then you've gotta believe God for rain. So we've gotta work these cases up and we've gotta believe that God is gonna bring along the help when we need it.
1: Well, Andy, that's very well said. I'm gonna do a short close here and then I'm gonna come back to each one of you for your final thoughts and word before we're, we're done with the program you know so when i look at this you know from being involved now for you know 26 27 months what does god want and he wants us to get to the point of realizing we got to this point by rejecting him and not trusting him and you know that that reality for each one of us does not excuse the behavior of the satanic puppets who are behind the evil, but I see COVID as a call to repentance. And so repentance of what? Well, you know, I can't talk for anybody other than me. So for me, you know, when I shine the light on me, the reason Grace died is because I let the propaganda influence me. I became fearful and I wasn't trusting God. I trusted the system. Yeah. If I would have never taken Grace to the hospital, she'd be alive today. That's why I see in that little drawing about, you know, dad's job is to keep Grace safe. I mean, that's that's tough stuff. I mean, I had to repent of that fear. And, you know, praise God, he gave me that ability to do that. You know, there's other things, you know, for me personally, you know, chasing the American dream, participating in the world, all those things, uh, you know, those were longer term sins that put me in that position of fear. And, you know, then after repentance, the good news is uh, we can see what God wants us to do and become a Diedrich Bonhoeffer. So Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, to not speak is to speak, to not act is to act. I mean, he saw we've got to be participants and resist evil. And then last, I'll just say uh, my little buddy, Grace, you know, he, she she just did not worry. And she would say, dad, God's got this. And I wanna give people a scripture in in closing that is a scripture of hope. And it's 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple and they took one of his. Grace was one of his and they took one. And um, God will make sure that everything is right in the end. So, Andy and Louise, the final word, Louise will go to you first and then Andy will have you wrap things up. Go ahead, Louise.
3: Well, um, bottom line is God, God is the one that's in control. And and this has allowed this as in the last three years he's allowed it for the reasons that you've already said and uh i i have to hold on to that um because i can get uh so scared um you know what's going to come next because i keep seeing it and that's what but that's kind of why I, I stay, I keep one foot in, in the hospital because I, I, need, I need to know what's going on in the hospital. Um, and not to be a, a big whistleblower or be this person that's like detectiving around. I didn't even look for cr- craziness during COVID, but I just need knowledge. Is, I need to be aware and then believe, I believe God will lead me the way that whatever I need to do. It's not if it's on my will. It's not right if I'm doing it on my my own will. Um, and so I just I I say my prayers every day that you know I will be done. And I, I just show me what to do because I I don't know. My brain doesn't know.
2: <laughs> well said, Louise. All right, Andy. Wrap us up. Yes. So uh, on our website it's uh, medicaljusticemn.org .com, and soon it'll be covidjusticemn.org or.com. there's a tab where you can join our fight if you're a nurse if you're a doctor if you know someone who who is that if you're a lawyer if you are a paralegal if you feel like you've got any even a, an administrative assistant and you want to volunteer some of your time you can sign up there and we'll get a hold of you we could use your help if you are willing to pray to the almighty god that he will give us wisdom in how to do this, we would really appreciate that. I think that above all else, and this is like with the amnesty question and everything else, and even the the standard of care and how to plead the case properly and, and how to get through the, the legal obstacles that have been put in our path, we need the Lord to give us wisdom. Because if we have the wisdom to know how to how to get to justice, then we don't have any reason to be afraid and we won't back down. If you wanna support what we're doing financially, you can do that through our website, or you can write a check to uh, Medical Justice MN, and you can send it to uh, Medical Justice MN, PO Box 505, Long Prairie, Minnesota, 56347. I give you that second option because on the website, there's a bit of a a fee you have to pay to do it electronically. Um, Thank you so much for having us, Scott you did inspire me when I heard you on that pod on the Jan Markel understand yeah. the times, I was feeling pretty overwhelmed last summer with trying to figure out exactly how involved I should get in this. And, um, I heard your, your call to action on that podcast and I contacted you the next day. I cold called you. I looked you up on the, I looked up Scott sheriff from Wisconsin. And there was only one guy that seemed like he was about your age. So I looked, I called that number and, and it was you, I left you a voicemail and you called me back later that day. Um, I just, feel I, I've I've
3: like listened to every single one of your podcasts, like just since Andy told me about it a lot, you know, two weeks and never, it's they're amazing.
1: Well, God, they're not amazing because of me. That's for sure. You know, he's, he's, um, he keeps doing it. It's it's uh, you know one miracle after another. It's hard to believe. I had forgotten about the Jan Markell uh, podcast, but yeah, I remember that now specifically. I had forgotten Andy, how what was it that motivated you? But yeah, I remember that now very well. And I remember talking to you because when you left the message, um, you know, I don't give out my phone number, but you you dug and you found it. You know, any good attorney can find my phone number if you want and you know you called and you know we just had it just was a great first talk it was mm-hmm. uh, it was it was refreshing for me and you have been I mean what you're doing it just blows my mind you know that whole you've got everything set up I mean it's it's really it's really neat to see I'm looking forward to meeting you in person next yes. week so that'll be nice all right thank you both for coming on today appreciate mm-hmm. it very much
3: thank you Scott thank you Andy
2: thank you thank Louis you.